We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast. Find yourself in this space every week, a place where American values are cherished and treasured, a place where we celebrate each other, a place you belong. Operation Enduring Warrior's mission is to honor, empower, and motivate our nation's wounded military and law enforcement veterans through programs ranging from skydiving, public speaking, archery, endurance races, and much more. Honorees overcome adversity and hardship through innovation, teamwork, and perseverance. Together, our team, honorees, and supporters make up our OEW family. Operation Enduring Warrior, honoring their sacrifice. For more information, visit EnduringWarrior.org. In this episode, Adam Francis shares what it is like to have an invisible disease. Fibromyalgia, a diagnosis some doctors still refuse to acknowledge. Adam's pain became so severe, so debilitating that he tried to take his own life. For those who find themselves in a similar situation, know there is hope for better days. Adam's episode is a must listen. You can find purpose and happiness. This is Adam's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Adam Francis. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. I met Adam at uh, the Gunnison Gut Check, which if you have listened to some of my previous episodes and have listened to Justin Meller with United We March, I met Adam there. And Adam is uh, with a fabulous organization that is sponsoring this season, OEW. And I am really looking forward to hearing Adam's story because I got to hear a little bit of it down in Gunnison, but I did not get to hear all of it. So we have all the time in the world right here, Adam. Cool. (laughs) So again, I grew up in in rural Podunk nowhere, which as a kid is kind of cool. You get to go outside and play. You know, it was the greatest thing. I spent most of my life, my early life in construction. And it wasn't it actually until I had two kids where I was like, I want to join the Army Reserves. So 2011, I joined the Army Reserves as a combat medic, which is the absolute greatest job on the face of the earth. Because unless somebody's hurt, you don't have any responsibilities. You get to drive all the cool toys, you get to shoot all the cool guns. And unless somebody's hurt, you don't have a job to do. It's, it's pretty nice. I went to boot camp in Oklahoma, then did my AIT in San Antonio, which is a very large city. And I loved it. It was really cool. I started noticing things and I started talking to the police officers that were there. I come home to my small rural community and I see the same things that I saw in a major city, such as substance abuse, homelessness, 
you know, all that stuff you'd find in a major city in my small rural community, obviously at a smaller scale. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, that's, that's not right. I don't know if I was blind to it from before, just cause I grew up around it and I'd never been exposed to it because, you know, my parents aren't really drinkers. I was a bit of a jerk as a kid and, um, Weren't we all? Oh, thank God they didn't have video phones <laughs> when I was growing up. I'd probably still be in prison. <laughs> and I've never been one to sit back and complain. I've always been one to try to find a solution. And my solution was become a police officer. Get done with boot camp and everything late in 2012. By March of 2013, I was in a police academy, which it was, it was a pretty intense process. We had to go through an academy, many weeks of field training where you basically take all those pieces, you put them together and learn how to use them. And I always said, if I could change one person's life as a police officer or one person's life as a medic, then I've done something good. You know, because in the beginning, all everybody I know that's a, a, a police officer said the same thing. I'm going to change the world. That's not realistic. I mean, it's a fantastic idea, but it's not realistic. Throughout this whole time, as I was growing up, my brother, who I loved to death, had a substance abuse problem. So I took my focus as a police officer and made it about not arresting these people, but trying to get them clean. Cause you can't, you can't arrest some problems away. It's just, I mean, the war on drugs is what, 40 years old now. They've dumped trillions of dollars into it. Guess what? We still have a drug problem. So I started making connections with these people and trying to get them help because everybody's somebody's daughter, everybody's somebody's son. Everybody's somebody, someone, you know, and, and they deserve the best shot that they can get. And I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed to have substance abuse problems that come from a history background of sexual assault, child abuse, get these situations. You're like, I, I can completely understand how someone becomes a drug addict, given the information you listen to some of these people and how they were violently sexually abused as a kid. And it's like, yeah, you know, I, I gotta be honest with you. I'd probably be a drug addict too, because they're just looking for that escape. So things are going really well. I'm enjoying my time in the army because again, I had the greatest job in the world. I'm enjoying my time as a police officer. And then one morning I wake up and I didn't feel quite right. Like, I don't know how to explain it other than sometimes you just wake up and you know, something's wrong. So I get up, go to my unit and I start my PT test and I'm one mile in and five steps and all of a sudden my, my body starts cramping and picture the worst Charlie horse you've ever had spread out through your entire body and it never went away. You know, so I went years undiagnosed, untreated every day of spasms, cramps. I couldn't eat right. I couldn't move. There were some days where I actually couldn't get out of bed. And I went to, I can't tell you how many different specialists and they're like, well, there's something wrong, but we don't know what it is. So good luck. I mean, it's not really a good answer. It wasn't until I got hooked up with a pain management doctor who we're on our like fourth or fifth visit. She's prescribed me pain meds and gabapentin and all this other stuff. And she's watching me sit there and I can't sit still. Like you'll notice now I just, I can't sit still. That just doesn't happen. And she's like, have you ever heard of fibromyalgia? No, I have no idea what that is. So the way fibromyalgia works is there's a disconnect between your brain and your muscles. 
All right. So your, your muscles are constantly firing and spasming and moving like you're doing something, even though you're sitting still. Well, unfortunately the unit I was in, you can't have a neurological disorder and be in. They didn't really know what to do with me. So their best solution was they gave me a handshake, handed me my discharge paperwork and said, good luck to you. How long after your first initial spasms when you were collapsing, were you let go then? It was about a year. And how did you get through that year? I mean, I, I would imagine you'd be at work and these things would happen. What, what would you do? I would just take as much ibuprofen and Tylenol as I could. And I would try to do the best I could. One of my huge things, and it ties back to the people with substance abuse, is mental health. It's not discussed enough. Like you see these, and I hate to say it, but these commercials for online mental health, they're horrible. They're not realistic. You know, like a guy laying on a, a bench in a gym with a couple hundred pounds on the bar is like, nope, I got it. That's not realistic. That's not how life works. Like mental health is never handled like that. Like it's, it just doesn't make any sense. And it drives me nuts every time I see one of those commercials. The whole time for me, it, it wasn't so much figuring out how to make my body work because I'm a stubborn SOB, I'll make it work. But I was now faced with, for the first time in my life, how to make my mental health work. Because I loved being in the Army. I mean, it was awesome. And now all of a sudden, that's gone. And when I got discharged, I didn't, I didn't have a definite diagnosis yet. So they're like, we've given you a year, we've taken as much time as we can, but you got to go. And I was like, Shh, shit. Were you let go from the army as well as a police officer at about the same time? No, I never had a break in service from police. Okay. The department I worked at, you know, I wanted to be honest with them. So I went to my chief and I was like, Hey, just so you know, I have something going on. This is what's going on. And I don't know what it is. They can't give me an answer. And that was the first time I was met with in the police force that they don't really give a shit about you. You're a number. Can you do your job? That was their only concern. Not, hey, are you okay? Is there anything you need from us? I got none of that. It was, can you do your job? If you can't, you need, you need to resign. So now I start having all these things compounding on top of, hey, I'm no longer in the army. Now I'm facing losing my job as a police officer and nobody gives a shit. I started talking to some of the guys I work with and they're like, well, you're a liability. I'm like, awesome. You know, thanks. I've, I've worked here a couple of years and I've never been a liability. Been dealing with this for the last year by myself. And I finally tell you, now I'm a liability. It was hard and I had no idea what to do. So one morning, my solution to what to do was I woke my young kids up. I got them off to school. I got my girlfriend off to work and I walked across the street and I walked into a church and I'm sitting in a in a pew and I'm saying a prayer this gentleman comes up to me and he puts his hands on my shoulder and he's like I don't know what's going on but I'm going to say a prayer for you you know at the time it didn't hit me I was like okay thank you sir you know I was trying to be polite he said a prayer for me walked back across the street and I took all my clothes and I piled them up like a kiddie pool, took a tarp, draped it on my bed and into this now makeshift mode I had made or kiddie pool I had made. 
got my gun out of the closet, laid down in this little kiddie pool, put it in my mouth and pulled the trigger. And it didn't go off. So training kicks in. I tapped a mag. I racked the slide, put it in my mouth again and pulled the trigger and it didn't go off. So by the time I realized what I had fully done, I had my gun apart and I was pissed because I couldn't figure out why it wasn't firing. I had two bad primers in a row in the same magazine from the same box of ammo, which according to federal ammunition doesn't happen. And then I stopped returning my emails once I told them why. I'm like, how I found this out? <laughs> they didn't want to talk to me after that. And I was so ashamed by what I did that I didn't tell anyone for years. Picked everything up. I put my gun back together, put it back in the gun safe. And I laid in bed and cried for the next eight hours because I was ashamed. And again, I, I didn't know what to do. I go on a little bit and I, I finally started getting treatments that were helping besides just, hey, we're going to pump you full of as many narcotics as we can. So it, it was a long struggle. I would love to sit here and say, hey, my mental health is perfect. I'm good to go. And it's not true because when you have a neurological disorder that you have no control over, you don't know if you wake up tomorrow, if it's going to be a good day or your body's going to so hurt so bad that going to the bathroom is, is exhausting. And I, I can't be thankful enough for my family because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have made it, you know, and a couple years go by. Well, actually not a couple of years, but I got, along all this process, I had my hand kicked closed in a patrol car door. Yeah, it hurt. It wasn't fun. Did it break anything? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You actually have five or six big bones in your hand. And if you break one of them, it changes the whole structure of your hand. And was this your dominant hand? It was. Oh. Um, I'm one of those weird people where my dominant hand's my left hand, but I shoot right-handed. So I was like, I could still hold a gun. I could still shoot a gun. I'm good. I go to the ER and they're like, listen, it's, it's broke. You can either have it fixed now or wait until it's really bad. Then have it fixed all at once. I was like, all right, I'll wait. Cause I'm an idiot. Well, what do you do to keep that stable? Just wrap it up. I just waited until the pain eventually just got to a point where it was tolerable. I mean, it was still messed up. I know I'm not smart, but I didn't want to have multiple surgeries. That sounds absolutely miserable. <laughs> it was not fun. And so I eventually had a surgery on it and I didn't understand the extent of the surgery and how much mobility I would lose in my hand. You know, I only have, oh, what did they say? About 36% mobility and use of my left hand. You know, that's why if you ever see me write, it, it, there's kindergartners who can write better than I can. And But you I, didn't ever want to try to learn how to write with your other hand? Oh, no, I tried. It was horrible. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, you know what? It works good enough. I don't write that often. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, I find myself in a situation again, like I had at the beginning of when I got sick. I'm stuck on my couch and I'm completely useless. I can't use my hand at all because I just had surgery. It's my dominant hand. Feeding myself is, is incredibly difficult. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to feed yourself with your opposite hand. Mm -mm. It's a nightmare. It makes you want to not eat. I can't do dishes. I can't do anything other than sit on the couch because they made it perfectly clear that if you mess this up while it's healing, there is no fix. So I was like, okay. 
I'm sitting on the couch. I'm in excruciating pain. I felt myself slipping back to that dark spot. I was like, you know what? I can't do that again. I'm going to hop on Instagram and I'm just going to look. And for whatever reason that day, I typed in hashtag suicide into Instagram. And I come across this picture of a guy with one arm carrying a girl through a muddy Spartan course because she couldn't get her leg back on. Just cold messaging. Hey, how do you tie your shoes? Hold on just a sec. Say his name one more time because you cut out there. Jonathan Lopez. I think I've ran across him. All right. He's a cool dude. If you've met him, you, you won't forget him. I didn't know how to tie my shoes. My thinking was if, if I can tie my shoes, then I can go outside. At that point, I was stuck in my house. Like I just wanted to go for a walk. It was nice out. It was the summer. So he's like, give me your phone number. I'll call you and I'll walk you through it. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Because it's social media. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. We all have run across that person on social media. It's like, yeah, I got you. I'll help you, whatever. And then you never hear from him again. It's like, that's it. So a couple of days go by and I sit on my couch and my phone rings. So I answer it because I got nothing else to do. And he's like, hey, it's, you know, Jonathan Lopez. And he taught me how to tie my shoes one handed. And it was like this moment of freedom. I was like, cool. Like I can leave my house now, you know, talking to him and going through it. I was explaining my situation. I explained my whole backstory. And he's like, have you ever heard of Operation Enduring Warrior? It's like, I have no clue what that is. I got nothing. I know what I read, you know, all the other operations are, but you know, what's military operation was that? He goes, it's not, it's an organization. So he sends me the, the website and I start looking and I'm like, okay, if these guys can do what they can do with what they have, then I have no reason why I can't do what, at least what I can do. And Fast forward a couple of months, I met this guy named Danny Stokes, who at the time was involved in the organization. And he starts talking to me about Indoc. I was like, I don't know what that means, man. I got nothing. Pretty honest. Like if I know, I know. If I don't, I'm like. So he starts explaining to me the process to become a team athlete with Operation Enduring Warrior. He's like, it'll give you the chance to help all these people you see on social media. All right, well, I'll give it a shot. And at the time going through the process, They'd only had one other person with my disorder or my disease or whatever you want to call it. No one had an understanding of what it meant. And, and being perfectly honest, there's, there's medical professionals that say fibro is not real. It's not mm -hmm. a real disease because you can't test for it. There's no definitive test. There's no lab they can do and say, hey, this is what you've got. So there's a lot of doctors who think somebody with fibro is pill shopping. I explained the whole thing to him and I was like, listen, I just need access to my meds. And I go through the whole indoc, and next thing I know, I'm a team athlete. I was like, okay, cool. I found a purpose and having a purpose in life, no matter how sick you are, no matter how out of sorts you are, having a purpose gives you a whole new outlook on life. Because then all of a sudden you don't feel so worthless, you know, and, ha and having a disease where it's predominantly a woman's disease, I think only 3% of all fibro cases are actually male. Wow. So now all of a sudden I found a purpose. I was like, this is awesome. And I dive because I don't do anything in first or second gear. It's straight to fifth gear. I'm going to go as fast as I can. If I hit a wall, I hit a wall. Cool. Whatever. I'll deal with it then. It just opened up so many avenues. Then I started looking at my mental health again because it still wasn't good. 
you know, if you've never struggled with mental health, you don't really understand what it means when somebody who has having a mental health day says, I'm having a bad day. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like all of a sudden you've got, you got things to look forward to. You're not sitting in that darkness anymore and you just can't see a light, you know, because the vast majority of people who commit suicide, they don't want to die. They just want the pain to stop. Can I take you back for a minute? Sure. Take me wherever you want. I got you. I want to go back to your mindset on that day that you wanted to take your life. Was that something that you had been contemplating for a while? Was it something that came to you quickly and you wanted to end it as fast as you could? What was that like? And what are you feeling before you put that gun in your mouth? Are you scared or what are those feelings? So when I woke up that morning, I was in so much pain. I had to crawl to the bathroom as at one time, a healthy young man that would go out and run a 5k a day before I went and lifted for two hours, having to crawl to the bathroom and sitting on the toilet to urinate. It just pushed me to a point where I couldn't, I couldn't anymore. As I was in the bathroom, I had made the determination that I just want peace. I mean, in every cliche thing you hear about suicide or someone who's about to commit suicide, where they're either extra affectionate or they're doing things they don't normally do to show affection. I did. Like I had them all. Like if you would have had a checklist, I would have hit them all that day. And when I was sitting in that church, I had hit a level of peace that it was going to be okay. And what was your purpose going there to church? Were you going to pray for forgiveness? Were you going there for what you were about to do? Were you going there to hope somehow a voice would come to you? And I mean, what was your point in going there? I'm a lazy Catholic (laughs) and, and suicide's a sin. So when I went to that church, I was, I was basically pleading my case in front of God. This is why I need to do this. So I wasn't necessarily looking for forgiveness. I was looking for understanding, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I found peace. And when I went back home, I was so tash driven that day. You could have lit the house on fire around me and I wouldn't have noticed. Like I was going to do something while I was building that little pool with my clothes and setting up the tarps. The only thing I kept thinking is I want it to be easy to clean up for whoever has to clean it up. If everything's in one spot, it'll be really easy to clean up. So when I finally put a gun in my mouth, the only thing I felt was peace and it's scary. You know, look, it wasn't until years later that I realized I wasn't afraid. I wasn't anxious. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't thinking about my beautiful kids. I wasn't thinking about my wonderful girlfriend. I was thinking, A, I'm at peace and B, I'll never be in pain again. Cause it, if you've never lived in chronic pain, 
you don't understand how exhausting it is. You don't understand how hard it is to do simple things like go to the bathroom or tie your shoes or even reach your feet or try to get comfortable at night. Like my poor girlfriend, she looked like she was an MMA fighter for a year or two because I would spasm in my sleep because all my muscles are contracted. I ended up punching her in the face and I felt horrible. There was, but there was nothing I could do. So when I lay down on that floor, I was at peace. Did you leave something behind? Had you written a note or did you think, well, they know what I've been going through. They'll understand. I, to be honest with you, it never crossed my mind. I did write a note and it was super short and I ended up burning it that day. But all it said is I just, I don't want to be in pain anymore. When your family found out about this years later or however long it was, why did you tell them? My kids don't know. Um, I've never told my kids. All I've ever told them is if you're sad or you feel like you can't do it, talk to me because I understand that better than you think. When my girlfriend found out, at first it was shock and then anger which I completely understand. She's like, why didn't you tell me? I didn't know how to tell her. I didn't know. How do you tell someone you love that? Hey, when you leave, I'm going to, I'm going to blow my head off. I, like to this day, I still don't know how you would have that conversation with someone. And I completely understand the anger and the worry and all that that went with it because I would, I would react to the same way. You mentioned that there were days you were in so much pain, and I don't know if that's still the case, where you can barely make it out of bed, you can't even walk. On those days that you had to go to work, how was that possible? I used a lot of sick time. And your brain's a funny thing. When you live in pain, if it's constant pain, your brain adapts to it. It's an amazing tool. So now, even though I, I still live in pain every day of my life, like I, I don't ever get a break from the pain, but the amount of pain I can tolerate now is substantially higher than what I used to be able to tolerate. And I've also learned things along the way. I know when I'm having a bad day, the worst thing in the world for me to do is do nothing. Mm, yeah. You know, it's, it's like throwing water on a hot engine. All you're going to do is blow it apart. So when I know I have a bad day, that's when I need to go to the gym the most. Or that's when I need to go to Walmart at 10 o'clock at night and walk around the store for an hour. Sitting here now talking to me, are you in pain? Um, I just had knee surgery two days ago. I know. What's that about? <laughs> what was that for? Well, when I was younger, I decided that I was going to wreck a motorcycle and see how hard a guardrail post was. That sounds fun. <laughs> They're hard. How are you feeling today then? My knee is super stiff, but I mean, that's to be expected. They shoved a camera in and a bunch of knives and stuff, so. I mean, it's not bad. Can you tell us a little bit more about OEW and the experiences that you've had there? Maybe what OEW means to you? Oh, absolutely. So OEW is a 501c3. We're an all-volunteer organization. We don't have any paid positions. And the beautiful thing about the organization is the vast majority of us are broken in some way. I always describe it as the land of misfit toys from Rudolph. Nobody wants a Charlie in the box. <laughs> And the beautiful thing about it is 
if you're broken in some way, whether it's physically, mentally, you'll find somebody that can understand. And 365 days a year, 24-7, I could pick up a phone and have somebody on the other end that's going to care and will stop whatever they're doing to listen to my world-ending meltdown at the time. Or Operation During Warrior is an organization. We've got a race team, which does the Spartan races. We've got an adventure team. One of our guys or girls wants to go climb the side of a mountain. We got you. We can do it. We have a scuba diving team, a skydiving team, and an archery team. We are open to military personnel, current or former, active duty police officers, current or former, and as well as firefighters. I understand that firefighters was just added, right? That's correct. And the military, after 20 years of war, has developed all these wonderful organizations outside of the DOD, Department of Defense. There's nothing, almost nothing, in the way of support for law enforcement and firefighters. We're a number. So to have an organization that understands and cares is life-changing. And until the culture of these two organizations, law enforcement and firefighters, catches up to the military, because we follow everything they do, it just may take us 20, 30 years, there's going to be endless amounts of suicides. Well, I can't remember if it was Jeremy, who was coming on a few episodes before you, or JP, who are both police officers, or Jeremy, he's he's no longer a police officer, right? But I think JP is. Yep. But one of them mentioned that thin blue line that you hear about. They told me that this thin blue line didn't exist for them until they found OEW. Absolutely. The meaning behind the thin blue line, it's not to separate us from them. You know, like it's portrayed in the media a lot today. All the thin blue line is supposed to mean is it separates the wolves from the sheep or the victims from the people looking to do bad things. And we're that line in between that says, Hey, you do what you want over there, but don't hurt the average person. Right. Which is great in theory, but just like my experience and Jeremy's experience, that thin blue line doesn't mean anything anymore when you're not useful. Right. There's so many cops that something happens, their career ends, they get sick, whatever it is, and they're no longer a part of that thin blue line. Nobody calls them. Nobody contacts them. Nobody says, hey, man, you okay? You want to go grab some food? It just ends. And OEW adds this very unique ability by most of us being broken in one way or another to where these guys and girls are finding a home again. I just had someone last night tell me as I was doing an interview to, for them to be an honoree. He's like, I found my home. And when you're in the organization and you're talking to these people to have someone tell you they found a home, it's life-changing. Cause that's what it was like for me when I found the organization is I found a group of individuals that understands what it means when I say I'm having a bad day. Your average person who has never been exposed to the world of death, violence, hatred, rapes, 
they don't understand what it means to have a bad day. And granted, obviously, there's people in the civilian populace that are exposed to that. But your average person, they're going to go their entire lives without ever seeing a dead child. And I think it's awesome. They don't have to. That's what we're here for. But every single time you see something like that, and every time, single time you smell something like that or experience something like that, it takes a little bit away from you. So to have a place to turn like OEW, it makes you whole again. You mentioned a few people with OEW. Are there any others who've really had a big impact on you? Every single one of the honorees that I've ever met. I love them to death. My first event I ever did, I was nervous. Of course, I'm the green fish. I don't know anything. And the first honoree I ever met was uh, a brand new honoree by the name of PJ who was shot in the line of duty as a police officer. And I just walked up to him. I was like, Hey man, my name's Adam. And he told me his name and we started talking and I listened to his story. And even though he was shot, our stories run along the same paths. Cause now he deals with chronic regional pain syndrome. Then you have individuals like Chris Wolf, who is, paralyzed from the waist down it's probably one of the without a doubt one of the strongest individuals i've ever met in my entire life like that guy can work circles around me but the thing i've noticed amongst all these people is their outlook on life like you you literally can't be unhappy around these people like they just have this amazing outlook on life and it just makes you want to be a better person when we talk about pts what is it that those of us who don't suffer from that need to understand and what can we do to help? So I was recently diagnosed with PTS, a mixture of stuff that happened to me as a kid, even though I wasn't deployed in the army, um, I still managed to find myself covered in other people's bloods and all the stuff that I've done, seen, done and seen as a police officer. The, I think the biggest thing for me, and again, I could only speak for me, be patient and treat us like people, you know, just because we're defective in some way. And, and that, and I say defective, not as a knock, but we're just different from a normal person. We still feel the worst thing in the world wants for somebody to do. When I tell them my story is they're like, Oh God, <laughs> thanks. Cool. Have That's a great awesome. Day. Bye. Yeah. Or, <laughs> They're like, well, you don't look sick. Like, what does sick look like? Can you draw me a picture of what sick looks like? If you know somebody that has PTSD or PTS, just treat them like a person. If they want to talk, listen. It's so frustrating sometimes when you're dealing with service members or firefighters or law enforcement. It all of a sudden becomes a measuring contest of whose suffering is worse. And that's the beautiful thing about OEW is there's none of that. Like trauma is trauma. Everybody has trauma in some way, shape or form. It's a chance for somebody to express their trauma and listen. How are you dealing with your mental health today? What are you doing to help yourself? So I see a therapist once a week for the longest time. And it used to drive my girlfriend nuts. I was like, I don't need to see a therapist because in law enforcement, if you see a therapist, you stand a chance of getting fired. Yeah. And that's horrible, horrible way to address mental health. So I see a therapist once a week. Um, I'm in an 
a command staff position at my department. And one of the first things I did when I took over, I made it easier for my guys to go seek help. I had a meeting with them all. I was like, listen, if you need to go get counseling, you experience an event, whether it's inside of work or outside of work, and you need help, just be honest with me. I'll move your schedule around. I'll try to work with you. I'll do whatever I can. Just be honest with me. Because nobody should have to feel like their job's in jeopardy because they need help. You wouldn't tell a person suffering from cancer, oh, sorry, you're going to, you know, you have cancer, you're fired. Why should it be like that for firefighters and police officers? Why do you think it's important to hear your story, to hear stories of other people such as those in OEW? Why do we need to hear them? So the cool thing about my story is it could happen to you tomorrow. It could happen to somebody you love. I wasn't shot. I wasn't blown up by an IED. I wasn't run over in a while well, performing a traffic stop. I literally woke up and didn't feel good. So there's someone that's going to listen to this and they're going to be like, that's what's happening to me right now. I know what that feels like. So getting these stories out is a fantastic way. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me, but getting these stories out are how people heal. I mean, it's healing for me and somebody's going to hear this and go, well, wait a minute. If he can do all these things and all these people he work with can do all these things, I can make it tomorrow. I can make it until tomorrow. Going through the police academy and going through boot camp, I had the mentality from talking to Vietnam veterans, Korean War veterans and World War II veterans and current veterans at the time of, I just got to make it five more minutes. Because if I can make it five minutes, I can make it another five minutes. And that's pretty much how I live my life right now, five minutes at a time. Because if I can make five minutes, I can make another five minutes. For those people that are in a really dark place right now, those that are thinking that they just don't want to be in pain anymore and are thinking about taking their own life, what do you tell them? Swallow your damn pride and go talk to someone. That's what it boils down to. I was too prideful to go talk to someone that could help me. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, it's going to get better. Because sometimes it doesn't get better. Like whatever situation you're in that's, that's making you feel like that, it doesn't get better sometimes. And there's nothing you can do about it other than change how you're looking at it. Go get help. You've seen a lot as a police officer. You said that even though you were not deployed, you've had other people's blood. So looking back on that now, would you have made any other choices or are you happy with the road that you took, even though the things that you've seen, the things that you've gone through, is all of that worth it? Absolutely. Because, and my girlfriend reminds me of this all the time, and I'm not going to sit here and be like, I've never questioned being a police officer because I do. There's days where I, I call my girlfriend and I'm like, I don't want to, pardon my language, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. She's like, you have to. Why? Why do I have to keep doing this? She's like, because if you quit, that's one less good guy and that's one more bad guy there might be, meaning other law enforcement officers. Because listen, I'll be honest with you. Not every cop's a good guy and nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. But I've done so much good, even with everything that I've seen in my brief time in the military, in my time in law enforcement, 
I've done a lot of good. I've helped over 75 people get clean and sober. I've been there when a mother lost their child. Or I've been there while someone's child's overdosing or someone's loved one's overdosing. And I've been able to be that calm in the middle of a hurricane. It's hard. It takes a toll on you. But you got to find ways to release that burden. Let's talk about for a minute the rap that police officers are getting today. Is that warranted? I am no by no means an expert on that question. Do I think there's times? Absolutely. Absolutely. Have we done it to ourselves? Yeah, in a part. But I think to blame everything on police officers, it's not fair. Because there are a lot of good guys. And they never make social media. I mean, if you really think about it, when was the last time scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, you saw a good guy, somebody who changed a tire in the middle of a pouring rain or bought a homeless guy a meal and some water and gave him a ride to a shelter. Because that's not what gets the views. Exactly. There was a famous saying in the 70s, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Is sometimes the rap warranted? Absolutely. You know, anybody who sits there and say, oh, my profession doesn't have any bad guys, is probably a bad guy or just completely clueless. Are there systemic changes that need to be made? Absolutely. And the first place to start is with mental health because you can only pile so much into your basket before that basket bottom is going to blow out and someone's going to lose their cool. You don't feel threatened at all, let's say, if you're walking down the street in your uniform, do you? So there's a thing called hypervigilance. Because I live in a small community where oftentimes the people I arrest are going to be the people standing in front of me in the grocery store, it's hard not to be hypervigilant. One of the most dangerous things I do are traffic stops. I don't know who's in the car. I don't know what their intentions are when I pull them over. You get used to living in this state of hypervigilance where you're always looking for something that's going to kill you whether it be the person in that vehicle or a person who's not moving over as they're coming up behind you because they're staring at the pretty lights on top of your car. And next thing you know, you're getting run over. Has that become more nerve wracking in the last few years to pull people over? Not where I live. My County is 800 square miles with 47,000 people. And we have more farm animals than people. That sounds lovely. I think I need to move there. (laughs) So for me, the populace that would be violent towards police officers is so small, but that doesn't mean there aren't a hundred things trying to kill you in a day. And it might not be people. I'm not too proud to admit. I almost got my tail kicked by a 600 pound bull a couple weeks ago. That sounds like a story. What do you do with it? It's not like you can put it in the car like a dog. So he started stomping the ground. I said, I'm not playing with you. You win. I'll go call animal control or something. I hope you were having a good physical day in case you needed to run. I made it about 50 yards. That bull, he turned around, stomped his feet. And I said, nope, I'm not doing this. You win. You go wherever you want, buddy. <laughs> there are different dangers where you live than you might find in other Absolutely. places. Absolutely. But you just learn how to mitigate that. Like you learn how to mitigate the dangers. And you also learn how to decompress when you come home. So one thing I've worked out with my family is if I've had a bad day at work, 
I come home and I tell him, listen, I am really stressed out. I just need to be by myself for a little bit. And I take that time, whether it's while I'm cooking dinner or whatever, and I decompress. Is there anything else that you can think of that you'd like to share with us? I think if anyone takes anything away from this, it's that the world is better with you in it. And that if you need help, get it. I mean, I'm not hard to find on social media. If you need help and you don't know where to turn, just get a hold of me. Where can we find you on social media? So I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Um, My Instagram is open to the public. And my Facebook is private because I do have some family members on there. But on social media, I'm a.f.francis on Instagram and Facebook. And my Instagram's open. And I leave it open because unlike a lot of people on social media, I post when I'm having bad days. Like I post when it's a bad day and I'm brutally honest about it because the world isn't sunshine and rainbows. Like not every day is walking outside and seeing Mr. Lucky Charms with his pot of gold. Like it's just not real. Well, Adam, what does America mean to you? America? It's the greatest place on the face of the earth. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. Um, It's the only, I shouldn't say, it's one of the few places in the world where you not only can say what you want, but you can do what you want. If you don't like your current situation, we live in a place where you can change it. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to work for it, but you can change it. You can, you can better your situation. I went to boot camp with a kid who grew up in the ghettos of, of New York city. His mother was a hooker. His sister was a, was a drug addict. His father was never in the picture. Three of his brothers were in prison and his other brother was shot in the streets. He joined the army to, to better his life. And he did, he did, did a fantastic job. I think he, I think he's either still in or he got out at the rank of E seven. So you can make your life better. You just got to want to make your life better. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate you very much. Isn't Adam great? I am always in awe of my guests who share with us the raw details of their painful journey to help anyone who is also in pain. Make sure to follow Adam. I guarantee you that he is true to his word and will reach out to anyone needing a friend. Did you know We The People, our American Story podcast, is found on multiple formats. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on my official website. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter from the website and be the first to hear about upcoming guests. Plus, I give away prizes. Yep, you heard that right. Next week, my guest is police officer Dexter Pitts. You will love his hearty grit, witty sense of humor, and easygoing warmth. We the people, our American story. The podcast for Americans who love America. 